Welcome to Technology Transfer IP. Technology transfer is the process by which valuable research, skills, knowledge, and technology developed by educational institutions is transferred to industry for development and to products and services that will benefit society. From basic patent licensing to promoting startups, entrepreneurship, and industry collaborations, while also investing in and managing technology developments. We bring you conversations with the leaders in technology transfer who will share their stories, including their successes, challenges, and expectations for the future. Here's your host, Lisa Mueller. Hello and welcome. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Jane M. Muir of Muir & Associates, Jennifer Chakro, the Associate Director for Technology Transfer at the California Institute of Technology, also known as Caltech, and Jennifer Gottwald, Director of Licensing at the Wisconsin Alumni Research Foundation, also known as WARF. Jane founded Muir & Associates Consulting in 2017 to help individuals and organizations interested in maximizing their innovation potential. Jane utilizes her decades of experience in technology commercialization and new venture creation to assist organizations in all stages of the innovation lifecycle. This is complemented by Jane's in-depth knowledge on the impact of diversity and inclusion to organizational culture. Prior to her time at Muir & Associates, Jane was a strategic advisor for Infotech and then the founding director of the Innovation Hub at the University of Florida. Prior to her time as the founding director of the Innovation Hub, Jane was the president of Autumn, the associate director at the University of Florida Office of Technology Licensing and Marketing Direction at the NASA Southeast Regional Technology Transfer Center. Jane has a BS in marketing slash business development and management from Southwest Minnesota State University. As mentioned previously, Jennifer Chakro is the Associate Director for Technology Transfer at Caltech, where she's been for the last 10 years. Prior to her time at Caltech, Jennifer worked as an engineer for government contractors and for computer science startup companies and spent several years at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Jennifer has a PhD in aerospace engineering from the University of California, Irvine. As also mentioned previously, Jennifer Gottwald is the Director of Licensing at WARF. Jennifer has been with WARF for over 19 years, the last two plus of which have been spent as the Director of Licensing. Jennifer is also an adjunct professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Jennifer has a BS in botany and German literature and a PhD in botany from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And with those extremely impressive backgrounds, welcome to the podcast, Jennifer, Jane, and Jennifer. Thanks, Lisa. Well, thanks so much again, the three of you, for taking part in the podcast. I'm really excited to have you here. And generally, the way I like to start the podcast off is asking my guests about their journey to tech transfer. Jennifer, Jane, and Jennifer, could each of you tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up in technology transfer? And perhaps Jennifer S., you can start us off. Sure. I had kind of a unusual route, I guess, um, but then I think a lot of other people did. <laughs> I started my life, my working life as an engineer, and I had an old boss who told me about an opening, the opening at Caltech. And I'm like, hmm, that sounds interesting. And I was like many women in STEM looking to maybe 
work fewer than, let's say, 80 hours a week and, you know, get away from, say, sleeping under my desk occasionally, that kind of stuff. (laughs) So uh, it sounded good. I went in and interviewed, had no idea what I was getting into, but here I am. Awesome. How about you, Jane? Well, yeah. So um, like Jennifer, I started my career in the private sector. And then in 1991, my husband and I decided to move from San Diego to Gainesville, Florida, where he accepted his first faculty position. And since I was pregnant with our second child, the deal we kind of made was that this move was for his career and the next move would be for mine. Well, suffice it to say, Gainesville is a small town compared to San Diego and job opportunities were pretty limited unless you worked at the University of Florida. So I found a position open there and interviewed for the director of the uh, marketing director of marketing position with the NASA Southeast Regional Technology Transfer Center, which was housed in the College of Engineering. And I remember the interview well, because when the uh, when I was interviewing, the center director asked me what I knew about technology transfer. And my response was technology. What? (laughs) (laughs) Fortunately, he hired me anyway. And I've spent 30 years working in what I think is one of the most rewarding professions imaginable. And how about you, Jennifer G.? So um, like everybody else, I think I stumbled into this career. I was working on a PhD in a very um, short postdoc when I did a year, um, not in the private sector, but in the government sector with AmeriCorps Vista, doing something totally different, working on um, access to literacy resources in low-income preschools and childcare centers. So what I learned that year is that I missed the science. I missed what I learned. I missed talking about science. But strange as it is to say, I loved meetings. I loved influencing people. I loved trying to get people to work together and to bridge together on projects. So when I finished up that year, I was looking for some sort of career that would let me use my background in science and work with scientists, but not necessarily doing the science myself. And I ended up at Wharf and have been incredibly fortunate and thrilled to be here ever since. Now, the three of you are each members of the Women's Inventors Special Interest Group at Autumn. For those of our listeners who may not be familiar with this, SIG, can you tell us a little bit more about it and actually how it got its start? Well, this is Jane. Since I was actually have been there since its start, um, maybe I'll take this one. Perfect. So uh, Jennifer G. and I were actually, uh, along with several other female tech transfer colleagues, at an annual autumn meeting in 2013. And it started out, we were discussing the merits of a paper that was put out by Scott Shane, wherein he was espousing that tech transfer professionals preferred to work with Caucasian males. And while we didn't agree with all of his conclusions, we did agree that there was a dearth of female academics participating pretty much at all levels. And we also realized that because of the role that tech transfer professionals play in actually guiding the research discoveries from invention all the way through the steps to commercial products, that we were really uniquely positioned to delve further into why this might be and what we could potentially do to help change the paradigm. And so uh, we originally started as a committee and then later transitioned to an autumn special interest group. And while the name and the membership 
of the group has changed over time, the common theme is that everybody who's been participating really shares a passion for wanting to see greater diversity and inclusion in all stages of the innovation life cycle. And that's really your passion is really why I wanted to have the three of you on the podcast, because the three of you, along with six other really remarkable women, you recently published a paper in Technology and Innovation on the results of a survey that was conducted on academic women involved in innovation, invention, and entrepreneurship. And I wanted to ask, um, could you tell us a little bit about what led you to decide to conduct this survey? Yeah, this is Jennifer G. and I can jump in here. So basically, we were all getting ready for the um, 2020 annual autumn meeting where our YSIG was planning to meet for several hours outside of the meeting to hold a retreat of sorts and figure out um, what we should be doing going forward with our group, um, what we had learned, where we were going to go. Uh, As we all know, we didn't go to San Diego that year, so we planned what was my first Zoom meeting for a couple of hours or maybe three hours um, shortly after the time the meeting would have been scheduled. And one of the things that came together was, as Jane said, we're passionate about um, increasing the participation of women, especially academic women, in um, innovation and tech transfer, invention, and in um, entrepreneurship. And we realized that we work at tech transfer offices or related to tech transfer offices, and we are always advocating um, that people should be doing customer discovery. Don't just find a solution and then look for the application. Figure out what your customers actually want. And that's when we formed our YSIG um, Customer Discovery Task Force to actually go out and collect this information from academic women who have been involved in innovation through their institutions. Our big goal was to understand the factors that encouraged or discouraged academic women's participation in technology commercialization at their respective um, institutions. And I do want to give a shout out to the other women who are not um, on this podcast with us. So um, also our partners in crime on all of this in conducting the survey and publishing the paper are Megan Anstus from Kentucky Commercialization Ventures, Tamson Barrett of Norton Rose Fulbright, Almisha Campbell from Jackson State University and the incoming chair of Autumn. So that will be great when she comes up as chair. Faru Garamani of EDGE, which is the New Jersey Research and Higher Education Network, Kirsten Loita of Osage University Partners, and Nicole Mercier of Washington University at St. Louis. So we have a nice mix of uh, people working in tech transfer offices, IP attorney, investors, uh, all kinds of parts of different of tech transfer represented there. And I want to say we're all super passionate about this. And it's been an amazing group to work with because whenever we have meetings and we say who's going to do this, somebody always volunteers and we really get things done. Yeah, I know a lot of the women on that list and you guys are an incredible uh, group and like you said, highly passionate. And so turning a little bit more to the survey, I'm curious, can you tell us about the methodology you use to survey these female academics who participated uh, in some level in innovation, inventorship or entrepreneurship? Yes, I'll go ahead and take that one. I happen to love data. So when we were doing this, we figured we would have to reach out to people and we would need to give them something 
relatively short to not be very burdensome because we know how how busy everybody actually is. So we put together just a 15-question multi-choice, well, mostly multiple-choice survey that also had a few, a handful of questions where they could expand on their answers and sort of put in whatever they wanted. And we reached out to uh, both women that we knew through the committee and to the various tech transfer office directors and asked them to pass it along to the women inventors at their institutions. So that's that was basically it. It's pretty short and simple. And we had no idea what we were going to get, but we figured this was a good start. Yeah, it sounds like it was an excellent start. And so do you have any information or can you describe the demographics of the survey participants? Yeah, this is Jane. I'll take that one. So the survey participants included 166 academic women from across the United States, and there were actually two from outside the U.S., and they were from both public and private institutions of varying sizes And while the initial plan was to only include faculty, we decided to include all the participants so that we could increase the types of experiences and hopefully be able to expand on our insights. Uh, Of those participants, 60% were at various levels of professorship and 28% were postdoctoral research associates and graduate students. And then the remaining 12% were kind of other. Um, In terms of their ethnicity, 73% were Caucasian, followed by 18% who were Asian, 5% were Hispanic and Latina, and only 2% were Black. Um, As a result of the lack of representation from non-Caucasian and the the uh, non-Asian respondents, it was hard to draw any intersectionality of the experiences um, and race Um, although that was originally our intent. I can see that. Yeah. So you sent the survey out and whenever you send a survey out, it's always kind of a nail biter because you just never know what the responses are going to look like. So what were you hoping in terms of responses to receive and what did you actually receive? So this is Jennifer Gottwald and I'll just say uh, we talked a lot about what the survey should be as Jennifer S. had described to us. And we tried to make it as accessible as possible. We as a group decided if we got 50 responses, we would call that success. And that would be a good sample size for us to really learn something from. We were overblown when we got 168 responses. And we even had one director at the end who said, please extend the deadline. I've got this out and I really want some people to respond to my institution. So that was great. Um, I think we were successful because, as Jennifer S. had um, said, we looked at our own networks. Who can we send this to? We all know um, academic women inventors. We looked to our tech transfer office directors. Autumn does a great job letting us connect with all the directors. And through them, we were able to say, please, you know, personally send this out to just, um, we gave a number of how many people we wanted them to target, not do a blanket. You know, we'll make it easy for you. This is all we want. Please, please, please. And they responded. We also, like I, for example, reached out to uh 
a prolific female inventor who's a member of the National Academy of Inventors who is passionate there about making sure that they have representation among their um, membership. And she's got a great network of academic women inventors all over the country, and she sent it out. So I think we just really um, did a good job of trying to reach people where they were. But we also had a great topic. Women wanted to talk about this. They really wanted to give their opinions and their suggestions, and they loved having a forum to be able to do that. Yeah, it sounds like they definitely wanted to be heard. And I'll just say that they, a lot of them also expressed uh, interest in please send us the, the, the paper or the outcome of the, the survey because they were very interested to hear if others had shared um, similar journeys. Wow, that's fantastic. I mean, your response is just sounds amazing. Yes, it was amazing. And this will tie into something that I think we'll probably get to a little bit later. But the whole idea of I am not going through this alone was huge and really resonated with a lot of our respondents. It definitely sounds like it. And it sounds like, you know, women, like you said, wanted to talk on this topic. And that's fantastic. So you got a lot more responses, over three times as many responses as you had expected to get. So now you've got all these responses. Um, What did you do next? Well, one of our questions, this is Jennifer S. again, I'll I'll just jump in here. Um, One of our questions was, if you would like to talk to us a little bit more about this, please provide your contact information. And 68 of the respondents actually did that. So we reached out to them. Some of them had moved on, but we ultimately interviewed 16 of the people, you know, called them up, (laughs) scheduled a call or a Zoom, and just got a little bit more detail about what they had provided to us on the survey. And that was fascinating. So how long did those interviews last, just out of curiosity? Uh, We tried to keep them to no more than a half hour, again, just to be respectful of people's times. But a lot of people just really wanted to talk. And, you know, we made ourselves available for however long they wanted to talk to us. So I don't know if we have a record, but I think one of them did go for over an hour. Wow, that's incredible. That's that's really amazing. So. So you've got these responses, you've interviewed these women. And so now I think we get to the really good part, depending on your point of view, of course, that is. Um, Can you tell us a little bit or describe for us some of the key findings? Yeah, this is Jane. I'll start with a few. Um, One of the things, just to kind of back up a minute, I think before we got to the key findings, we took all of the responses from both the the written open-ended questions as well as the interviews and kind of broke them up into themes. Um, and those themes are what then evolved into to the findings that we presented. And so just a couple of those findings, it was interesting that all of the respondents who participated in technology commercialization efforts or participated, you know, at in whether they were invention, entrepreneurs, or whatever, they did so because they wanted to see their research applied in the real world. That was the number one strongest motivator for these women. Um, Some of the other drivers were compliance with university policies. Uh, They were also in search of additional resources for their research and development. And they also wanted to find potential connections to outside collaborators and industry. Another key finding was that two-thirds of the respondents 
were aware of technology commercialization training programs at their institution, and three quarters of those who were aware actually participated. Now, there were slightly fewer who were aware of the entrepreneurship training at their institution. Interestingly enough, considerably fewer, only approximately half of those who were aware participated in the entrepreneurial training. And the respondents who participated um, in any of the training all considered the training to be extremely helpful. Uh, and with regards to the training, uh, another key finding that came out was that these uh, female academics all looked to their tech transfer offices for training and technology commercialization. I'll turn it over to Jennifer. So this is Jennifer G again. And yeah, along those same lines, we did um, ask some complex questions about training and education. And one um, very positive finding was that the majority of the respondents really felt that they had a reasonably good understanding of the commercialization process. Now, you can look at our sample size. We were looking at women who had been in contact with their tech transfer offices, had disclosed inventions, had been involved in entrepreneurship. So we don't know who we're not not reaching, but those that are reached through these programs felt that they had a decent understanding of what we in the tech transfer office were trying to do to help them get their technologies applied in the real world. Another finding was that fewer than 10% of the respondents were aware of any training, mentoring programs, or resources that were specifically targeted at assisting women in the commercialization process. Um, this is a complex answer to look at. And I think it's something we want to dig more into because you're not sure if they weren't aware because those programs didn't exist within their innovation ecosystems or if they did exist, but for whatever reason, they were too busy or were not getting the message in a way that um, resonated with them. So they were not aware of such programs. I think it's a combination of both. I think we know that there aren't that many programs targeted at women um, and that um, sometimes those can be can really make a difference within an ecosystem. So I will get to a bit more of that later on when we talk about our recommendations. Uh, Jennifer S., do you want to jump in on some more findings? Uh, sure. Well, one of the things that we mentioned a little bit earlier was that mentorship came up as being super important to the majority of the responses. And that's probably unsurprising. Uh, but everybody who mentioned this wished that they had access to and felt it would be helpful for them to engage in commercialization activities if they did have some kind of a mentorship network, somebody that they can talk to who'd been through this before. Uh, one of the other things that's kind of a mixed result was interesting is that apparently the women's experiences with the tech transfer office at their institution were pretty mixed. Some viewed their TTO as very helpful, while others felt that there was a complete lack of assistance, or even in a few cases, they felt like they'd been discriminated against. Uh, one example that was cited as being a problem was the high turnover rate in TTO staff. So they felt that could really disrupt the relationships where they'd establish credibility on both sides and they'd have to start all over again with somebody new who didn't understand their research. And they really felt that that was an impediment for them wanting to get involved in the process. 
I think another thing there is that, you know, if you look at the percent of women that are tenured full professors, it's considerably less than uh, our male colleagues. And so um, because of the seniority, a lot of the women felt like there was a lot more attention being paid to their male colleagues. Uh, and a lot of times they even shared how they weren't even included on decisions and discussions about patenting and licensing. Yes, that, that definitely came up. And that was something we got it a little bit more on the actual interviews. Well, some people had mentioned it. I think it came up a lot more when we actually talked to people where they felt that, oh, well, I was a grad student at the time and I was ignored because the important male tenured faculty was the only one our tech transfer office spoke to about what was going on with this patent. But again, that wasn't across the board. There were some women who did say that their TTO was super helpful and really handheld them through the process, and they really did appreciate that. Now, I know the survey also identified several barriers to participation by women. Could you tell us about a few of those as well? Yeah, this is Jane. I'll start. Um, funding is obviously a big challenge, not just for, for female academics, but for our male colleagues as well. However, it, it appears that it's particularly daunting for women pretty much in all phases of the innovation life cycle. If you look at it from a federal funding standpoint, the uh, NIH did a study over a 10-year period and found that female applicants across all grant types apply for fewer grants, ask for less money, and received an average of $40,000 less on first-time research awards compared to their male counterparts. Uh, it also found that the female submission rates were significantly lower at the entry-level faculty rank. And so, of course, without funding, you can't do research, and it's the research that leads to the invention. Um, when you look at federal funding for the early-stage high-risk research and development through the, uh, what's known as the SBIR and STTR programs, the proportion of phase one applications and awards to women-owned small businesses remain pretty consistent, um, hovering around 13 to 15% over the last decade or so. And then lastly, when you look at venture funding, which goes into the startup companies, funding invested in women-led startups has actually declined from a dismal 2.8% in 2019 to 2.3% in 2020. And this is despite the fact that the number of women-owned firms has grown at five times the national average. That's bad. So, yeah, it's very bad. And, and part of that is due, obviously, to the dominance of men uh, in the venture capital industry at about 95%. And then there's also research that... Uh, explains that male entrepreneurs are 60% more likely to be awarded venture funding than their female entrepreneurs, even when they're making the same pitch. So we have a long way to go. Definitely. So this is Jennifer G. I'm going to pop in on another um, major finding, and that was um, time, the lack of time, time constraints, everybody just being too busy and not able to get to anything. So 
as daunting as it is to get to additional funding and money to support your research, we know it's impossible to find more time. We have a finite amount. Um, my university hasn't come up with a way to uh, uh, increase time in the world yet. <laughs> Hopefully they will someday because I think that would be a great invention. But um, this was one we really struggled with as a group as to what we could say about this because we all feel it too and our male colleagues feel it as well. I think for women and other underrepresented groups, especially in academic settings, it can be even more of an issue in ways that people don't always recognize. When you are um, representing a certain group, a gender or a race within a department, for example, you're asked to sit on almost every committee that that department has so that that department, every committee will be hearing from your point of view. That's a wonderful sentiment, but it really messes up your schedule. Um, also, you know, I think we all know while um, we all strive for work-life balance and we have a lot of couples and couples are not um, uh, always one man and one woman, somebody ends up doing a little bit more work within the family, within child raising, taking care of older relatives, um, managing household schedules. Oftentimes that could be the woman. So she might have more responsibilities outside of work in addition tr to trying to get the federal grants to get the research going and, you know, make sure that she is um, set up to receive tenure. All of those things academics have to worry about. And we also know that academics are spending so much more time on administrative tasks um, that just seems to be increasing exponentially every time you ask them. So one way we thought about this is if we can't create more time, we have to make one thing, we have to make sure we're being very, very careful with the time of our um, female um, inventors, all of our inventors, frankly, so that we're not wasting their time. We always have to be prepared as tech transfer offices. We have to do the work we can do and use their input in places where we cannot provide that. But another thing is you have to move this activity up on somebody's prioritization list. So you have to show them, for example, with women and what we've learned in this particular study this is a way to get your research applied in the real world. If that's what you want to accomplish, if that is one of your goals, disclosing to your tech transfer office and working with us is a way to accomplish that. And when you tie it to one of those priorities of the people you um, are asking for some of their precious time, they will move it up on their prioritization list and be able to give you some of that time. This is Jennifer S., and I would like to jump in here, too, to sort of expand on what Jennifer was just saying is, and something that we spoke about before, there, if you do have a lack of knowledge of how to engage in this process, how to even reach somebody at your TTO, being time-constrained is not going to help that. <laughs> um, you have to have a way to get more of that knowledge that's easy to access, or you're never going to do that. If you have to figure out everything on your own, it's going to take you a lot of time. And that becomes a huge problem. And of course, another thing that we mentioned is some of the women reported that one of the big barriers for them was discrimination and gender bias. As Jane was mentioning before, there are studies that say most venture capitalist firms would prefer to invest in startups run by white men. And that's been shown by the numbers and by the amount that's actually invested. So, you know, you take that and if 
from the very start, you're trying to disclose your invention to your tech transfer office, and you feel like you are being discriminated against and not being given the time of day because you are female, that's going to make you a lot less likely to even make the attempt. So those are both both things that came up out of the survey and the interviews afterwards that people felt were big barriers. So you've shared with us your key findings, and, and now we just went through several of the barriers to participation. So what were your final recommendations in view of all this that you learned uh, as a result of the survey? Well, this is Jane. We're, we're really excited about the recommendations that we've come up with because we believe that they can really impact systemic change and do it in a relatively short term. Um, one of the first things was that training was the most frequently mentioned topic in all the open response questions. And it was cited as one of the most important things that universities can do to assist faculty in their innovation journey. Now, there are some amazing programs that exist across the country, uh, not only for you know training of men and women, but training specifically to engage female innovators in the process. But unfortunately, most of these programs are available only in specific institutions where they were created or championed. And we believe that if we could identify the most successful of these programs and create turnkey templates to scale them on a national level, that we could significantly increase their accessibility and their impact. But of course, to do this would require funding and resources. And this is Jennifer G. I think along those lines, if we have these great training programs, even where they do exist now, it's important to make female faculty members and other um, women um, innovators within your university aware of them. And we've recognized that requires thoughtful outreach. Um, you can't just send a blanket email and expect everybody to sign up. I think sometimes we look at programs that we set up with general numbers of people who participate in them and say, great, we got, you know, 20 people to sign up for this cohort. This is wonderful. Without looking at the composition of the cohort and seeing are we are our communication and outreach methods only reaching a certain group of people and not others. I still remember probably back in 2013, one of our very early meetings around this um, whole topic and somebody saying they were talking about an entrepreneurship program within a business school at a major university, and they were really concerned that the female business students were not participating in this. Um, so, the, you know, they were sending out emails and putting up flyers saying, come learn to be an entrepreneur or entrepreneurs, come gather. And they realized they had to reach out to the women and say, I want to invite you to this. I mean you. This is set for you. And the women would say, well, I'm not an entrepreneur. No, this is for you. I mean you. And I think she had said you had to say that phrase, I mean you, about four times before you could get through. So I think we have to learn about our outreach methodologies, the language we're using, and who our message is reaching. And there's not a one-size-fits-all solution to this, but I think it behooves us all to be aware of this and recognize how our message is working and who we are reaching when we're inviting people to join in um, our programs on education or networking or anything along those lines. 
Yeah, I'll just chime into that, Jennifer. You know, I think the key word there is it has to be relatable. We have a lot of amazing quotes from these women who um, participated in this paper. But the one that stood out one the most to me was one woman who had been through the entire process of invention, startup company, etc. She said, even today, I get flyers about training programs and I don't go because I don't think they relate to me. They're just not relatable. Oh, ouch. <laughs> um, I will jump in here too for one of our other findings that I feel a little bit like a broken record, but keep mentioning <laughs> is that there is a significant interest in having role models and mentors. And some of the women said there was even specific interest in having mentors of the same gender and ethnicity. Although that's not a requirement, people just want to be able to talk to somebody who's been through this, who can show them that, yeah, this is doable. You're not the first person. You're not going through this alone. So one of our recommendations was, of course, to establish a virtual national mentoring network to assist women in all phases of the innovation journey. And an alternative to that would be to identify programs that already have a strong mentorship net network and see if you can either build on that or copy it and replicate it for your own particular area if there's a way to scale those programs. For instance, uh, you know, we happen to know that IEEE, which is the big electrical engineering organization, recently launched a network for their women electrical engineers to be able to reach out. And so you could have, you could build on that. There are things like that that you could build upon. But this is, this is something that comes up frequently, not just in our survey, but in lots of things that women would really like to have access to people who, who've been through this, who could perhaps give them a little bit of advice and just let them know that, yeah, what you're experiencing is normal or not normal or, you know, yeah, stick with it. You can do it. Here I am. I was able to do it. So you can too. I think that's really, really important. Yeah. In addition, you know, there's a lot of tools, resources, and funding that's designed specifically to assist female academics. And they're starting to become more available. And particularly, we're, we're really excited about some proposed legislation that will make billions of dollars available to support research and development activities of all underrepresented populations. And this is important because women face unique challenges. And a lot of times, the standard training that's currently being deployed doesn't address these challenges. Um, yet, female specific training has met with some resistance at some academic institutions because male-dominated administrators don't understand the need for training um, on these gender-specific hurdles. They understand the need for invent the training on the inventive process, but not on those specific hurdles that women face and providing those women in the training with tools to overcome them. So, for example, research, we talked about the venture capitalists prefer pitches by men, even when the same content is delivered by women. Um, but there are ways to overcome some of the challenges and to deal with the questions that investors give women that are different than the questions they give men. So these female specific training programs provide that initial knowledge 
um, and help them to overcome these biases, may, enabling them to be more successful. This is Jennifer G again. Um, oftentimes, I have found through the years when I speak about the gender gap in patenting, a lot of very well-meaning people say, isn't it just a pipeline problem? Don't you, isn't it just a matter of if we get girls interested in science, this will all work itself out in, you know, 10, 20 years. Yep. And I think there's some truth to that, but there's definitely been data that people in our group have found and others have found, and there's publications out there showing that definitely isn't the whole issue. But that doesn't mean we can't be working on better pipeline and keeping more women within that pipeline for longer. And one way of thinking about that is sometimes you'll hear, well, you know, about um, 50% of the doctorates um, um, given in the United States go to women. But when you look at it, when you get to full professorship, female representation is down to 34%. So how can we encourage our universities to really have plans to be more inclusive, to be more equitable to women and all other all kinds of other underrepresented groups so that they um, are more represented in all levels of um, university um, leadership, administration, um, professorships, everywhere. And one way to look at that is to maybe think that the federal funding agency should be encouraging plans along those lines by making an institutional plan um, along these lines, a requirement or um, a judged factor when looking at um, federal grant applications from that institution. So obviously, we all know that federal grants are incredibly important to institutions of higher learning. And we also know that the federal government is encouraging more um, inclusivity and uh, participation within innovation. The uh, USPTO has the Council on Inclusive Innovation. I'm eagerly awaiting them coming out with a report soon. Federal agencies are with us in this um, in this cause. So maybe the granting agency should think about how they can encourage our institutions of higher learning to be working on making sure that we have women and other groups represented equitably throughout all levels at that university. And this is Jennifer Shockrow, and I'm just going to jump in here also to say that tech transfer offices are actually uniquely positioned to help with this. We are, you know, one of the organizations within a university that are in charge of getting things out to the public in a usable form, getting the results of research out. So there's a lot that we can do already to help women become more involved in this process. One of the things is just to get your head around what the actual statistics are at your particular institution. So commit to tracking and reporting your gender metrics. Uh, this is now one of the questions on the autumn licensing survey. And that's a great way to get that information out there so that we can sort of see what is the size of the problem. We actually, our group, the WISIG, has a separate subcommittee that works on metrics. And that's one of the things they're doing. They talk to the USPTO, who's also trying to track this, to WIPO, to a number of other organizations. So this is actually really important data. They are currently working on a how-to guide for tech transfer offices, which will be wonderful because I think there's also a lot of confusion about how to do this. Um, another thing that tech transfer offices can do is internally implement your own gender intelligence training for your staff. 
to make sure that you don't have people who are who have an implicit bias or at least can recognize that and do something to take steps to make sure, well, am I actually waiting this particular disclosure less because the chief inventor is a woman? Um, and to just sort of learn also how to better interact if you happen to not be female or a particular ethnicity, how do you interact with people who are? Um, adapt training programs and your outreach to be more inclusive. As Jane was saying before, there's a big need for this. Uh, Jane and Jennifer were both mentioning that. Um, you could create reward and recognition programs that could play a little bit into part of the institution's faculty tenure and promotion package to make it the incentive, like what Jennifer was saying before, here's an incentive to actually make the time to get involved in this because, hey, it could help me get tenure. Uh, review your standard practices for communicating with faculty and are there mechanisms that are going to make your communications with your female track faculty uh, more transparent? And how do you, and just in general, can you be less vague and more forthcoming about what the process is and how does somebody engage with that process, whether it's disclosing your inventions, patenting, um, licensing one of your inventions, or startups, or training, or anything. Make sure that there's a way that's very clear that can get out to people. And, uh, you know, hey, we're within Autumn. You can work with Autumn to develop a diversity and inclusion pledge. Similar to several years ago, there was a, a, not a pledge, but sort of the nine points of licensing. You could do something like that that could be adopted by tech transfer offices just to sort of bring it a little bit more to the forefront of what people are thinking about. And to really understand that, yes, this is important. If you're missing out on a large portion of your inventors, you are missing out on getting some probably fabulous inventions and technologies out to the public. How do you better do that? This is one really clear way to do that. And I think Jane has been involved in that quite a bit. So I think she might have more to add. Yeah, I mean, if you make it something that people recognize and are given credit for, they're much more motivated to do it. So um, I think that that and, and the beauty of that is the amount of time and resources that would go into that would be relatively insignificant compared to the significant impact that it could have. Um, and then the last recommendation I'll just jump into that we have in the paper was, you know, we mentioned earlier that there's proposed legislation uh, there that will allocate federal funding to support tech transfer offices and, and this really critically important profession that we all participate in. Um, and this is so important because, Lisa, as you know, when the Bayh-Dole Act was implemented in 1980, it required the universities to proactively protect uh, and to work to commercialize federally funded research discoveries. But those responsibilities, they were assigned with limited guidance and with no allocation of funding to enable the universities to perform these functions. So the act, you know, it was really the genesis of the tech transfer profession, and it's regarded as one of the most economically impactful 
pieces of legislation that have ever been passed in the United States. Uh, to give you an example, there was a report that uh, the Biotechnology Innovation Organization did back in 2017, and it looked at the autumn data from 1996 to 2017, and it reported that academic tech transfer contributed $1.7 trillion wow. to the U.S. gross industrial output. There was $865 billion to the U.S. gross domestic product. 5.9 million jobs were supported. There were 480,000 invention disclosures, 15,000 startup forms, and over 200 drugs and vaccines were developed through public-private partnerships since the Bayh-Dole Act was enacted. And so, you know, the, the impact is absolutely phenomenal. And yet many of the tech transfer offices remain significantly underfunded and have limited patent budgets. So our recommendation that federal funding be allocated to enable these under-resourced tech transfer offices to implement some of the recommendations that we've outlined in this paper, we think is critically uh, important because if their TTOs are better able to engage the entire inventive talent pool of their highly educated faculty and students, we believe the economic impact on the nation could be significantly amplified. And, and kind of hand in glove with that too, I think allocating funding to Autumn, who now not only is the um, Profession Tech Transfer Professional Association for universities and research institutions, but it's also managing the 300 plus federal laboratories. And so they are uniquely positioned. So if we can help them to help tech transfer across the board, everybody's going to win. Absolutely. I think you said that really well. And, and thank you, the three of you, for, for sharing those um, recommendations. So I'm curious to ask the three of you as, as we come to a close here, where do you think we go from here and, and what are the next steps? Well, I guess I'll go first. This is Jan again. Um, so, you know, there are currently lots of programs and resources that are targeted at STEM education and invention and K through 12. And those are really important. Uh, those are going to have a little bit longer term payoff uh, than some things that we're recommending. Um, and there's also a lot of really great programs targeted at helping women in business. But there are very, very few programs that are targeted specifically at engaging academic women in innovation. And if you think about it, this is one segment of the inventive talent pool that has the greatest potential because they are highly educated, many with degrees in the sciences, and they're working in universities and research institutions that have technology transfer offices to help guide them through the technology commercialization process. So if we can deploy programs to engage more of these high potential women and programs to empower the tech transfer offices with techniques and tools to further engage them in process, we have just tremendous potential for short-term impact. So 
What's next? Well, we're actively seeking organizations that want to collaborate and support us in implementing some of the recommendations that we believe can do just what we've been talking about. So anybody out there in the listening audience who's interested in working with us, please reach out. That's great, Jane. You said that so well. This is Jennifer G. again. I just want to share something I really learned when I had the honor of presenting these findings at the latest autumn annual meeting. As part of the panel that um, spoke to the findings with me was Dr. Kimberly Foster, who's an innovator, a professor, a dean, um, probably many other things at Tulane University. So she told the story of how she got involved in innovation and what helped her along the way. And she just spoke so well well of her personal story and what was happening, that one of our other panelists at the end, his main recommendation was listen to your Kimberly's. So I would encourage everybody in tech transfer out there, talk to your women innovators, talk, ask them these questions like we asked, what's working within your system for them, what could be improved to better meet them where they are and start implementing those changes too. Uh, yeah, I have nothing to add to what Jennifer and Jane have just said. I think Jennifer's last point is go and talk to the people who are in the trenches and see what they're experiencing and what would be helpful to them. Well, Jennifer, Jane and Jennifer, I really can't thank you enough for all your insights and time today. This has been an absolute pleasure and extremely informative. This is an extremely important topic. So thank you so much for taking the time today to walk us through the paper um, I'm sure some of our listeners are going to want to reach out. They're going to have questions and and want some advice. Um, where can they reach each of you if they want to reach out? And, and maybe Jennifer asks if you want to start, that would be great. Yeah, sure. I can be reached at jshockrow at caltech.edu. And this is Jennifer Gottwald. I can be reached at jennifer at wharf.org. And this is Jane, and I can be reached at Jane M. Muir at gmail.com and love to hear from anybody interested in reaching out. Thank you so much, Lisa, for giving us the time and the platform for doing this and for doing this super exciting podcast within the tech transfer world. Yeah, we really appreciate it, Lisa. You're awesome. Yeah, thank you. No, thank, thank you so much, the three of you. It's really been my pleasure and it's been a great opportunity to have this chance to talk to each of you. Thank you for listening to Technology Transfer IP. Please visit us online for more resources at techtransferipforum.com. New to Tech Transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for Tech Transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups, Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses, insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and align on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.